You are listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast, episode number 63. Today I'm joined again by the wonderful Nava Carmen. Today we'll be discussing body image and fertility treatment. Where do practitioners stand? G'day. This is like the topic of the moment in my life. This could not have come at a better time. We didn't actually plan this, but it's just, I love it when the universe puts some stuff together and we get to talk about the thing that's uppermost on my mind. Yeah. It feels like divine timing. It feels (laughs) like divine timing. There's been a lot of discussion in, in and around social media in the last couple of weeks around your the launch of your new course, which we won't talk too much about because people can check that out for themselves if they want to. But, um, you know, you've done some great work with, with addressing the issue of body image and body size with regards to fertility and, you know, challenged some of the assumptions that are out there. And I think it's really fabulous. And that's why both of us decided several months ago, many months ago, I think almost 12 months ago that we decided to put this topic on our agenda. And here we are. And I think it's important that when, for me, at least when, when I start talking about this, that I start by acknowledging the privilege I bring to this conversation. So I bring what's called thin privilege to this conversation, which means that I am seeing the world through the lens of someone who hasn't had the lived experience of being in a bigger body which means my experience of the world is very different to the experience of someone in a bigger body. So when I talk about this, it's from a learned perspective, not a lived perspective. So firstly, bound to get stuff wrong. Intention good, impact may not be, but bound to get things wrong. So acknowledging that from the start. But also it's like the work that I've done, we've done, all of us as a a world have hopefully done over the last couple of years and looking at the issues of our own white privilege, our own racism, our own issues that we bring into practice from that point of view. It's not until you start looking at it or someone points it out, you realize the depth of your ignorance and the depth of the fact you've just been going along, doing the right thing, creating nice safe spaces. And you realize that you have just not seen a whole other world out there that once you start looking, you cannot turn off. You cannot stop seeing. So it's like I have a whole set of dialogue in my head, a whole secondary line of communication that happens in my head now when I go into all sorts of different places and when I'm looking at things in my own practice in my treatment room. And it'd be really nice to be able to talk about that internal dialogue in this episode that we're talking about. Mm. I really like the way that you framed up that conversation, that not everyone is going to be able to understand what it's like for our patients who do have challenges with, with their weight. Their weight may not even be a challenge for them. It could just be that that's, that's the way it is. They've always been a particular shape or size and it's really only been pathologised by us and sometimes unnecessarily and that if we're making broad, you know, we're making broad brushstroke sweeping assumptions about someone's overall state of health just simply based on the size of their body rather than other markers that they might have, then we can, as you say, we can inadvertently alienate our patients and we can make it difficult for them to 
feel that our clinics are safe for them, which is the opposite of what, of what we're trying to do. Until we have these types of discussions, it's not even going to be on our radar for the, for the vast majority of us as practitioners. You know, we think we're doing the right thing. You know, we just say, oh, you know, let's just help you to lose a few kilos or, you know, whatever the approach might be that we take with our patients who are in larger bodies. That's a learned approach. That's a taught approach that we've taken on as the right thing to do without thinking critically about it, most of us, certainly in my case. The thing that comes to mind for me, and I, and I feel like, you know, we're talking about specifically about fertility, but we could really, for all intents and purposes, we could be talking about anyone coming in for any type of general health issue. But thinking specifically about fertility, and if I'm thinking more about, you know, my patients who are wanting to be pregnant, they're wanting to carry a healthy pregnancy and to be able to deliver a healthy pregnancy. And I, and I think I kind of like reverse engineer it backwards. And I think about what is the hospital experience? You know, if this person's going to be birthing in the hospital, what is the hospital experience likely to be for them if their body weight is in a particular category? I know that they get classified as high risk that automatically end up with this whole cascade of intervention being thrust upon them just simply based on a number on a scale and so you know I'm thinking in the back of my mind if I've got a person who's sitting in front of me who's you know body mass index which is a horrible metric by the way but if their body mass index is up around 40 or above I know that they're you know when it comes to the business end of the pregnancy they're going to be under a lot of pressure to make medical decisions that may not be based on anything other than what their weight is. It's not necessarily going to be based on how good is their blood pressure, how good is, you know, all of the other things that we can do to measure what the real risks are. Um, So they're the things that kind of stick in the back of my mind. I think, okay, if I'm taking a preventative approach to this person, you know, and it's the same with any other type of person that comes in, if I've got a woman with endometriosis, for example, I'm thinking, okay, how can I help this woman to, you know, to go down a a trajectory that takes her away from the risks of preeclampsia, for example. Um, They're the the sorts of things that come to mind for me. I'm, I'm not so concerned about, you know, I think it, it makes sense to go based on somebody's overall health markers. How's your energy? How's your sleep? How's your digestion? What are your periods like rather than somebody's weight? But I'm really looking forward to this conversation to see how much we can kind of dig into this and how much we can uncover. So you're talking about something really important, which is the cultural framework and the societal framework in which we exist. And Firstly, to say I'm living in London, you're living in Australia, the, the birthing experience, the fertility experience is different for us country to country, right? So I can only speak from my experience in the UK. And that's not to say the same thing doesn't happen, but I think that we have a, a system that is better opened, less paternal and more open to challenge without uh, punishment in this country. And there are frameworks that are set up that preserve the rights of the patient. So when you're saying, what can we do when we reverse engineer a situation, what can we do to make sure that 
thing experience is good. And so the conversation that you're having in your head, if I'm understanding is in order to help at that end, uh, part of my job will help her to lose weight. So she doesn't have to experience that. Yeah. Not necessarily to lose weight, but to have the weight, have, have their weight during pregnancy kind of match up with, you know, because there's, there's help, there's weight gain in all healthy pregnancies, but to have the amount of weight gained during the pregnancy to support the metabolism and to check for any missed medical issues that might be of concern, but to help to mitigate um, excess weight gain so that those so that those red flags aren't aren't set off inadvertently in the medical system. So it's that healthy trajectory you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. So number of things, I'm going to pull this apart because I think it's a really good conversation to have between us because it's like, you know, the conversation that people have had with me to help me pull apart my thought process, Matt. Firstly, I would challenge the assumption that a person who is living in a bigger body would automatically gain more weight than another person would. There's such a difference between a metabolically healthy person and let's say, and a non-metabolically healthy person. And those things can exist in bodies of any shape or size. That's the first thing. Secondly, there's an underlying presumption that happens with the medical field, I think, and with us as practitioners, for all the reasons we've already talked about, that says that the starting place is that people in bigger bodies aren't healthy, aren't fertile in the same way as everyone else, aren't capable of holding their pregnancies in the same way as anyone else. And this is all, not all, but mostly down to the idea that everything is based on, which is BMI. And if you examine what BMI is, it's an inherently flawed proposition. Oh, it's, it's so stupid. Really, do you want to talk a bit about that before I kind of go into Yeah, let's talk about BMI because it is really stupid. <laughs> so BMI, body mass index, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the idea, it is based on, there's an equation for it weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. And the premise on which this is done, of course, was European white men and extrapolated from that, never meant to be used for health. And inherently, actually, there's tons of information on the internet. You'll look at this inherently racist too, which is just wonderful. It's another layer for our people who are in bigger bodies, who are also people of color. So look at that proposition, right? And it doesn't take into account muscle versus fat. So people who, uh, a lot of athletes, a lot of people who are quite muscular, people who are you know quite fit and have worked on their muscle mass will often show up as being overweight. And I'm using air quotes when I say this, but overweight. So a BMI that's above 25 is considered to be overweight. Over A BMI over 30 is considered to be obese and a BMI over 35 is considered to be morbidly obese. And these are, these, are medical, these are medical definitions. Yeah, so which is also another thing we've got to talk about terms, right? We've got to look at terminology as part of this conversation later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in particular, one of the things that happens in Australia, it doesn't happen with all scenarios of obstetric care, but there are certain, there are certain health outcomes and trajectories that can be that people can find themselves in not just in obstetrics but in all aspects of medical care um, you know people can be refused certain health options based on their weight based on their bmi 
I think that's the main thing to say is that is that people's access to usual routine medical care can be withdrawn or restricted based on their body mass index and based on their weight to height ratio. And to give you a really concrete example, if you're struggling to visualize what that means for our fertility patients, I have had patients in the past who have had to have IVF because of male factor. And they have been people of various different ancestry, um, Canadian lady, Native American lady, um, European, white European lady, um, various different colors, various different sizes of being in bigger bodies. And all of them have been super healthy. Um, marathon runners, um, one did the, the tough mother uh, challenge, all really healthy, metabolically healthy, in great shape, doing IVF because of male factor. All of them had been told their BMI was too high and so had to go on crash diets and actively make themselves physically and metabolically unhealthy in order to be able to have IVF. Mm. When that happens, that's a form of eugenics. That's not good to be denied healthcare like that. So to be really clear about the impact of BMI, it is so deep, it is so pervasive, and it is so nonsensical as to be obsolete. And in fact, um, Parliamentary Working Committee over here in the UK has now made a statement um, all about the fact that we should no longer be using BMI as a measurement. We should be using the HAES, which is a health at every size approach, which is looking at each person as an individual, figuring out, are you healthy? What can we do about your health? It's a very different question. Mm, Absolutely. Something that I've become aware of probably in the last 10 years, I've been paying a little bit more attention is the the type of obstetric care that my patients receive, depending on the provider that they go to. Some of them are basing their obstetric care on, you know, very old school, you know, let's measure your 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 tummy let's you know bring in a wee sample every week and you're going to jump on the scales every week and so people can be put under quite close scrutiny when they're pregnant which um you know if if someone's marking down your weight every week it's uh, it can become quite confronting whereas other health providers are much more patient-centered care and so the consults are more around how are you doing how's everything going for you you know, they might have an ultrasound in their rooms. They might just be doing, you know, things like blood pressure and checking, you know, doing routine blood tests and so forth. And depending on the type of provider that people get, they can have a very, very different experience. So if we are discussing body size in terms of fertility, it's important to understand this and to have a you know, to have maybe a list of care providers that you can refer to who are body positive in their, in their patient care. And that brings us back to the original premise that we were talking about, about the culture. And so one of the things that I started to do as a result of the work I've done as a result of having done this course that's now being taught by Nicola Salmon, who's a fat positive fertility coach on my platform. She teaches, we've got two courses with her. One is, and let's talk about this later, updating the TCM that's around on um, dealing with people in bigger bodies and putting it in the con- in a wider context that we're talking about. And then there's one for all other health- holistic healthcare practitioners, be they nutritionists or osteopaths or, or whatever else. But one of the things we talk about is how to help our clients challenge the system. They shouldn't have to is the first thing, but how to help them challenge the system by asking for evidence-based care and also by asking for trauma-informed care to some extent. 
because rather than the health outcomes being down to BMI, there's a huge body of evidence that shows the health outcomes that have been correlated with being in a bigger body are actually much more about the shame, the guilt, the pressure, the expectation and the trauma around their experience of being in bigger bodies in the world compounded by, as you have just described, what it's like to be a person in a bigger body going into a healthcare provider that is not doesn't do person first, we call person first treatment, that doesn't go, right, you are the expert on you. Let's start from there. What do you need? How do you feel? Whereas asking them to get on the scales sets off a whole cascade of stress and shame. And we know that that's a, that's a direct line to inflammation and that's a direct line to weight gain. Mm. So I just, it's, a, it's approaching it from such a different point of view as a practitioner. Absolutely. And coming back full circle to my comment at the start, you know, when I'm seeing people who are in larger bodies and, you know, and trying to reverse engineer what their experience might be, it's, it wasn't an assumption that they're going to gain more weight or, you know, gain weight at a more rapid amount. It was just the fact that from, from the definite, from those medical definitions, they've got such little leeway. Sometimes they're already beyond those categories and sometimes even at their baseline weight, they're already into that risk category where they are going to be denied certain medical care options or even, you know, forced into additional testing that they may not need. And I'm thinking, for example, gestational diabetes screening. Do you have the right to decline that? We have the right. So I declined, you know, I've had clients who've declined. I declined in, in one of my pregnancies. You know, do you have the right to say no and still be treated? Yes. However, the level of coercion is very strong. Um, and almost all of my, almost all of my patients have had the test, even if they didn't want it, um, because they were, um, either shamed or belittled or guilted into having the test done. Yeah. I personally declined with, with both of my pregnancies and, you know, I had a very, a very understanding, very, um, you know, patient focused, you know, person first, um, obstetrician, um, who was fabulous with me and didn't even bat an eyelid. You know, I had significant weight gain in both of my pregnancies. I gained, uh, 30, almost 35 kilos in both of my pregnancies, which for the people who think in pounds, I think that's over 70 pounds that I gained in both of my pregnancies. And it's not like I was eating, you know, chocolate biscuits and ice cream nonstop. Like I was, that's just the way that my body responded. And so I guess I do have a little bit of an understanding of what, of what it can be like to have people make assumptions about your health based on your size. You know, people were saying, oh, you must have had gestational diabetes. It's like, well, actually, no, I didn't. You know, and people saying, oh, you know, it must have been this and it must have been that. And it's like, well, actually, you know, none of those things were my health challenges when I was pregnant. Yeah, so I guess there's this, the extremes there where you've got someone who can have a, a high starting weight and may in fact gain only a few kilos throughout the whole duration of their pregnancy and be considered at a higher risk than someone who has a much lower starting weight but can end up escalating a lot with their weight. They could end up potentially being the same weight, you know, and, and all of those health outcomes and those 
options around medical care, you know, a lot of that also centres around the type of care providers that you have and what their biases and what their assumptions are about what's going on for you. And ultimately, if there's concerns about someone's health status, why don't we check it? Because we have these amazing things called blood tests and, you know, we can check someone's blood pressure and, you know, we can do all kinds of fabulous things. Check their liver function without making a presumption about their weight. It comes back to everything we keep on, we're going to keep on saying, I think, which is look at the person, look at their health. Ask yourself, am I treating this person the same way as a practitioner? With these same set of symptoms, if I had a thin person in front of me, am I going, am I treating them exactly the same way? Or am I starting with seeing a person in a bigger body and making everything about that? And when it comes to obstetric care, same question. We don't ignore risk factors. We don't ignore red flags, but we don't presume that everybody is the same and should therefore only gain weight in the same way or at the same trajectory or the same rate. And we've been skirting around the use of a word. Fat. Yeah, I noticed we've both done that, not deliberately, but let's say the word fat because this is a word. This is a word that's come up a lot on my social media and my trolling over the last week, as anyone who follows me will see. But this is a loaded word. This is a big word. And this is a word that that I have been taught to reclaim because it is not, as Nicholas Sammer calls it, a value-based judgment. It's just a description. Whereas the word overweight or underweight, which we've been taught as the polite and medical term, is a value-based judgment because it makes the presumption that there is an ideal or a normal weight, is my air quotes. So I think it's really interesting to see how triggered that word people are around that word in all body sizes and how our desire not to offend and to do the right thing actually these days I think inadvertently leads us to lose use language that is perhaps not ideal. And there's no one size fits all, right? That will be not right for some people, just as overweight will not be right for some people. But as I'm now talking about either using the words people or folks in bigger bodies, um, because of course my, my clientele is not just women, they're trans people, all sorts of people, people who identify as people, queer people, not just women, female, um, but also using the word fat because it is a non-value-based judgment. You are a person in a fat body. And there is also descriptors within that. Nicola refers to herself as mid-fat. So there's very interesting reclaiming and changing of language in the body positive community. It's interesting because I can feel myself. There's something that gets pushed in me when we say the word fat out loud. And I'm imagining that there are people listening to this right now going, oh my God, they're saying that word. They're saying fat. Um, I wonder if there's a way to approach this with our with our patients, with our clients, to determine what is, you know, what is the best ways to discuss their body and their body size, their body shape. Because I can imagine some people, some people possibly could be triggered by the word fat. Like, you know, similar to the way that we, you know, we, we might inquire about someone's pronouns. We might inquire about somebody's gender descriptors are there more and less sensitive ways of approaching this? 100%. 
But I would say that it's the same approach we should be using for every single person in our practice, not just people in bigger bodies, right? It's the, the approach of this is your body. This is your lived experience. This is my job to honor who you are. Tell me about you. Tell me, how do you like to be referred to? Who are you? How do you describe yourself? What words will work for you that I can use? What will make you feel safe in my clinic? Mm. And it's just that spirit of not presuming that we are the expert. We're the expert in Chinese medicine or nutritional medicine or osteopathy or whatever you are when you're listening to this, but we're not the expert in our clients. It's for them to tell us. So simply approaching it with the idea of, let me ask you who you are. Tell me what you need from me. And that's where I will meet you. It's a transformative conversation to have with your clients. Mm. I like that. I really like that. And it has, an, it has a genetic and an epigenetic component having that conversation too, which I think is really interesting. Cool. What do you mean by that? So I talked a bit, Nicola and I did a live on uh, Instagram, which you'll find on my feed on the weekend. And I talk a bit about it then, but I have had a client last week. I had one, but it has happened before. I had client, I have young women coming into me, like 14 years old with their moms and they're coming in because they've got PCOS and, and they've put on weight all of a sudden. And so me simply sitting down and having a conversation that goes, I don't believe in BMI. I'm not going to treat your weight. You know, what about if we look at how you're talking to yourself? What about if we look at the fact that an image of wellness doesn't have to be a thin white woman? What about if we just teach you that a lot of the messages that you're saying to yourself about how you should look are not really coming from you, but are coming from society? You know, can we talk to mom about what has food been like in her life? And how can we just have this open dialogue about decolonizing our approaches to what we should be looking like, what we should be eating, what looks like health, how to have this joyous experience of regaining good health on every level, whether it's food or exercise or whatever works for you, even if it's lying on the couch and resting as an act of reclamation. And changing that conversation for a young woman changes her children and her grandchildren. So what I mean by epigenetic changes is that when you have that conversation with someone, however, however old they are before they have babies of their own, or if they're having that conversation with their parents, you change it for every generation to come. And we know that, that DNA changes happen as a result of trauma. You, you can remove the trauma and give them a dialogue that means that they are fully accepted by you. And we change things epigenetically. I like that. It's a nice reminder. It's a nice reminder. Let's talk about some other aspects of body image. And I'm thinking in particular, people who have a history of disordered eating, because often we feel compelled to give diet advice and lifestyle advice. And for some people, if they have a history of disordered eating, if they don't have a great relationship with food or with their own body image, that can be really triggering for some people. And I wonder what your discoveries have been, Narva, over the course of the years of working with patients. How do you approach this topic? It's a difficult one. And I think also it's back to BMI, right? Sometimes a BMI that is too low is just as is considered an issue just as much as a BMI that is in air quotes too high, right? Mm. And it's not about the BMI, it's about what is right for that body. And I've had clients in various stages of experience and recovery 
And a lot of the time it's taking the focus off talking about food and talking about what is happening and looking at things that underlie the motivations to eat or not eat. So how are you feeling about today? What's triggered you today? You know, you've had an upset with your mom, what emotions are happening for you and how are you dealing with those emotions? So we're looking at that internal dialogue and we're looking at their experience of being in the world and what is bringing them joy and what is hard for them and support. I meet my clients and support them there. I don't feel that I have an expertise to be able to to discuss diet with my clients. I don't do very much of that. I usually move to a colleague of mine who's a functional medicine nutritionist to talk about that aspect of it, which is a privilege I have because I can just focus on that whole person and what they need from me in that moment. But I think there's stigma around too thin as well as too, you know, people in too smaller bodies as well as too bigger bodies. But the world encourages the former and disgraces the latter. And not only encourage, we celebrate thinness. Oh, my God, you're looking fabulous. You've lost weight. Mm. I felt like I'm on a postpartum journey. You know, like you, I'm a person who is in a fair, you know, I'm five foot. I, with both my pregnancies, have been in size 18 jeans. That's pretty fun. And, you know, my postpartum journey is one of health. The incidental byproduct of that is that I'm moving back toward the shape I had before I got pregnant. And now I'm doing this work. I'm finding it really interesting and also sometimes quite difficult that people are saying things to me about losing weight when that is not where my head is. That's not what I want. That's not where I am. But so much societal reward comes my way from that experience. You know, it's interesting when we talk about body image, you know, some people through the various factors that have influenced their health find themselves at a very low weight. And it's not something that they do intentionally. It's not something that they that they work hard or they, you know, they restrict their, their intake. You know, some people find themselves really struggling to be able to maintain their weight. And for, for some of those people, they can also be quite challenged by, by the judgments and the, and the perceptions and the assumptions that go on. And from the, the patients that I've seen, it seems to be less of a sticking point though, because as, you know, as we said, you know, culturally and socially, we do, give people less of a hard time about their about their weight if they're overweight but it's it's something that people do feel they just feel that they can freely comment on someone's weight oh wow you've got such a great body i wish i was so thin as you and sometimes you know people are thin because of health challenges or they're they're just naturally thin but they would actually like to be a different weight but they can't get there easily Um, So it's interesting to see the whole spectrum. You know, if I think of some of my patients, you know, I have some patients that really struggle to maintain a body fat percentage, for example, if if we're talking about body fat percentages, which is a little bit, a a little bit more meaningful than BMI, um, but not by much without context, Um, you know, but women who struggle to keep their body fat percentages above 20 percent for example which for a woman's quite low for a menstruating woman's quite low and these are people who you know they might eat really well and they eat a lot you know they might have something like three thousand calories a day of you know which when you're eating healthily and you're eating well that's a lot of food you don't work at that though don't you you really that's a part-time job 
you know, eating is a part-time job for these people because, you know, even a handful of macadamias is only a few hundred calories. So there's some assumptions that we can make as practitioners that can that can land us in hot water. Just as, you know, assuming that someone who, you know, and I'm using air quotes here, is within an expected body size for their height and we think, okay, their weight kind of looks like it's okay, they haven't got, you know, they don't look too thin, they don't look too, they don't look too fat. We think, okay, they've got a normal body size and we're going to talk to them about food and all that kind of stuff. And some some people really... You know, and I'm sure you've dealt with this many hundreds of times, as have I, Nava, that some people can be really anxious about the impending weight gain associated with with a pregnancy, that they, you know, some people are so so strict and so restrictive with their with their diet and with their food intake and they're petrified at the idea of putting on a couple of kilos. You know, you know, some I had a patient come to see me um, a little while ago and, you know, and they'd put on um, a kilo and a half and hadn't been able to lose it. And, you know, and it was a really big issue for this person because they'd been the same weight for a long time, a kilo and a half, can't lose it. Um, you know, some of these people can be, you know, the idea of a healthy pregnancy resulting in something, you know, like 10 or 12 or 15 kilos of weight going on for some people, there's a lot of work that needs to happen prior to pregnancy to allow for a, set, a greater sense of ease and a relaxation and a spaciousness and an acceptance within the heart. If we think about the, the link between the heart and the uterus and the, and the bowel my, you know, it's, it's something that's really important to address with compassion and grace which is what we all hope for, but the execution of it sometimes doesn't quite land that way. As you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, we are hard on ourselves, aren't we? As women, we are hard on ourselves. We talk to each other in a way that's, I mean, I personally had, we've talked about this before, I've had to unlearn, I've had to start to notice how I'm talking to myself. And our clients too, you know, like, I'd be interested to hear what your experience of working with people who are in still in the grip of a learning dis- disorder, sorry, uh, an eating disorder and those who are in recovery is. But my experience is that the, the internal dialogue is so different and that what you just said about working toward the ease and the acceptance, I think you have to actually do that work. Whatever body size you are. Hmm. Self-acceptance is such a... You know, I, the the picture, the the mental picture that comes to mind when I think the journey towards self acceptance, and I have this picture of like the Himalayas, and I'm trying to climb Mount Everest, and I don't have a Sherpa to help with my bags, and I'm just there with my stick to kind of like my my hiking stick to try and help me up the mountain. It, it feels like, you know, just when you think that you're getting close. You haven't even reached the base camp. <laughs> it's an ongoing thing, isn't it? It's a work. I, I love the fact that that's your mental image, and my mental image is me on the couch with a shot of cold vodka and some M and M's. That's like my, you know, the whole world can get stuff. I'm just doing me. 
vodka and M&M's. Going back to my question, though, what do you feel is the difference? What is your experience of the difference in that dialogue and people who are in recovery and people who are still in the throes of an eating disorder? Do you have, do you, have you seen enough of those people to have a feeling about that? I haven't had a lot of experience in treating people who are actively who are actively dealing with disordered eating. I've had a handful of patients who've been diagnosed with disordered eating, but in actual fact they just had significant gastrointestinal issues and significant food reactions. And once we discovered the full range of safe foods and sorted out their gut and got rid of the gut pain, they were able to eat normally and maintain an acceptable body weight for the medical people to discharge them. So I haven't got, what do I have? I think there's, what do I want to say about this? I think there are some times when I come across people who have disordered eating, but they don't have, they don't have an official diagnosis and it's not something that's consciously and openly discussed. It's not something that they potentially acknowledge. And that's something that I definitely do not have the training nor the expertise to help to bring that into, to help bring that into the, the focus of treatment. So I can speak to my experience, which is people who've had a history of disorder eating. And for most of the people, it's been either anorexia or restriction, you know, significant food restriction or uh, bulimia. So binge, binge eating and bulimia. And for a lot of those people, the, it'll come up, you know, they'll, they'll, I don't have anything in my intake form. I, it's not something that I ask of people. Um, and as I'm saying this out loud and as we're having this discussion, I'm thinking, wow, I could do my, I could do my intake better. I could do my intake a lot better. You know, how's your relationship with, with food? Just as important a question is how uh, it, it's just as important a question as how is your relationship with your mom? Yes. Sometimes they're the same question. Sometimes. And also we're presuming just, I'm also realizing that I think it comes across that I'm presuming disordered eating is either not enough or air quotes too much. But of course, disordered eating these days is also can really masquerade as uh, following a sort of regime of food too. So paleo or keto can look healthy, but can also be a form of eating disorder. Wellness eating can be a form of eating disorder. Rigid calorie counting, anything that doesn't just purely involve, I feel like that and obviously medical issues aside, and this food is going to bring me joy. Getting to that point for a lot of people is a tough, a tough road. Yeah. And a lot of people don't have the grounding in their up, in their upbringing around making good choices around food and being able to process your emotions in ways other than eating or drinking or taking some other type of substance that changes the way that you feel rather than dealing with your feelings. There's a certain amount of binge eating that I think that happens in, in my patients that we, that we discuss. 
I think that's possibly a separate discussion. I don't know if these people necessarily have issues with their body image. Um, definitely there's a lot of binge eating and emotional eating and I think the term the term that I often use with my patients that gets a that gets a nod of like how do you know is that you open the fridge door and you look for the meaning of life and it's not in there. And then 15 minutes later you open the fridge door again and the same things are in there. It's the same choices and still the meaning of life does not does not come back at you. What a great phrase. I love that. <laughs> all love it. I, I borrow it, please. <laughs> <laughs> We've all done it. We open the fridge, nothing's in there. Open the open the pantry, nothing's there. Go to the fruit bowl. Yeah. Is is that what we mean in you know in the Neijing and the Ling Shu when we're talking about indeterminate gnawing hunger? I it's a, certainly a modern day interpretation of that, isn't it? Hmm. I like that idea. I'd be very interested to do a bit of research in that area. There must be a scholar of some sort listening to us right now who can tell us. Write to us and tell us, yeah. <laughs> Write to us and tell us. This is what indeterminate gnawing hunger is. We have all of these strange indications from ancient Chinese texts. We want to know what they are. Is that similar to hanging off the fridge door looking for the beginning of life? Well, since we're talking about TCM now, let's talk about the fact that have you, I have yet to read a textbook which talks about inverted commas weight in anything other than pejorative terms, in anything other than functional terms. Spleen isn't working. Fluid is accumulating. Do you ever see it talked about in any other way? I've seen it talked about in rather unhelpful ways. Like I don't know that there's really any great strategies for treatment in Chinese medicine. Yeah, that's what I found. Yeah, which I think comes from a lack of context and a lack of compassion and a lack of understanding about how people come to find themselves in bodies that are carrying lots of fat. And it's something that I've got simmering in the back of my mind that that might be that might be an article or a webinar or a book that comes out of me in the next five or so years. We definitely need more writing about it. And this is one of the big things that's in our TCM module that we've done is re-examining qi in the light of all the things we've talked about in terms of emotions and inflammation and really putting a completely different lens to what you see in front of you in terms of our clients in the treatment room and giving you much more 21st century updated TCM ways of looking at fluid, at spleen, through the lens of emotions, through the lens of experience and translating it into really usable, treatable terms, but without that pejorative, negative, presumptuous way that these books that we so far have, have us treating our clients. Yeah, there's so many assumptions and there's so many things that, that are just incorrect within that, you know, spleen damp framework because not everyone who is fat has damp. There are people who have yin deficiency and people who have significant blood deficiency. I'm just reminded of this case with this patient who'd seen another practitioner and, and the weight loss strategy with this particular practitioner was to give everyone the same formula they all got yin chen hao one 
Right. And she thought it was fabulous because it um, it flushed out her bowels and gave her a flat tummy and would I please give her some more. And there were so many things wrong with that. that you know, it didn't fit her constitution. It didn't fit anything about what was going on in her physiology. And I can imagine that there would be people for whom that type of approach would be appropriate. But maybe we can we can talk about a few a few strategies that can be helpful for, I mean, we're not even treating it. So maybe we don't need to talk about it. <laughs> we, we want That's, to, the, thing. That's yeah. the thing. We're not treating, we are treating the person. So when we're talking about it in my module, we're not talking about how to help a client lose weight. And we're not trying to talk about weight loss formulas and of which there are a ton of weight loss formulas in our books, right? And they're categorized. We're yeah. not talking about we're talking about looking at the impact of living in a bigger body and what that does to a person's chi, particularly through the lens of emotion. And we're looking at that person and how to treat that person. Because, mm. you know, spleen chi deficiency and damp can manifest differently in every person that's standing in front of you, or no matter what that body size is. So presuming that that is the underlying disorder for everybody, as you say, is just the wrong way to go about it. And from a medical point of view, you know, not everyone who, not everyone who is carrying lots of weight, not every fat person has a problem with their thyroid. Absolutely not. And all their vitamin D levels. Hmm. And in some cases, being in bit of bigger bodies has some medically proven protective mechanisms. Well, the body is adapting. It has wisdom. Yeah. It has, and even I should also say, and even when there is a, co- a connection, not just um, like a causative connection, the percentage—if you actually look at the research—the percentage of difference for people in bigger bodies and people in smaller bodies is so marginal as to almost be able to be uh, mitigated by again taking that person first approach and looking what that client is bringing you in terms of their health and their body. Mm-hmm. So taking an evidence-based approach is what we want to encourage for these patients. We want to we want to be role models and providing this care to our patients. We want to support them and empower them to seek out similar care from their other health providers. What does that look like for us in our clinics? Well, for me, it was definitely recognising that I only know what I know that despite my good intentions, I just didn't know enough and I had to go out and do the work. And I'm seeking in my module to do to empower practitioners so they didn't spend years doing it. They can just spend two hours getting the culmination of Nicola's wisdom and my own experience. But really to recognise that in order to be safer for our, and I don't use the word safe because I think we should never aspire to safety. We should always apply aspire to be as safe as possible because that leaves room for growth and room for mistakes because we all mess up as practitioners. That's how I learn my best lessons quite often, unfortunately. But to do the work as a practitioner, to understand the evidence, to have it at your fingertips, to understand the lived experience of the person in front of you is transformative. That's where I think we should all be starting. Hmm. You know, I really love that and I... And I love that we've had this as a topic because I think as much as we like to believe that we are holistic and nurturing 
and that Chinese medicine is all about providing this, you know, this fabulous model of care, we've got some horrendous stigmas that are rooted so very deeply in our medicine. And this is a topic that I'm parking for another time, mental health and Chinese medicine. We've, we've got an atrocious attitude towards mental health in Chinese medicine. But we, getting back to today's topic, we do have a lot of work to do in, in regards to body image and in regards to treating our patients at whatever weight they are, but especially our patients who are in fat bodies and how do we, how can we see past our assumptions of, you know, damp, stagnation and, you know, all of the things that we, that we assume are there and, and let's just focus on, on the patient in, in the way that we would focus on any other patient. Quite right. And in effect, the conversation comes around to the, why are we treating these clients differently to all other clients? I find that myself, what I learned from doing the work to have learned from doing the work to diversify my practice in terms of color and gender and sexuality and size is that really that I should have not been having these categories in my head all along of difference, that I should be the same practitioner for each person that comes in my room. And it's kind of shame on me that I've had to do this work to learn that Mm. and to learn how much I didn't know and how poorly I was being without even realizing for my clients. Mm. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to admit these things. I do, I, I do admire that about you, Nava. Thank you. <laughs> it takes a lot of courage and bravery. You have a very strong gallbladder. <laughs> I'm going to get off this and I'm going to see my, my husband going, oh, God, you didn't talk about yourself like that again. Like, <laughs> I just don't know how any other way to do it, basically. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a, you know, we all, st- I started doing this when I was 19. And, and the tradition in which I grew up of everybody holding their clients close and the spirit of competition and the spirit of always having to know what you look like, you're do- what you're doing, that left no room for me to make mistakes, no room for me to grow, no room for me to, to, to see the strength in failure. And now I'm all these years in and I know, you know, I've reached the position where someone actually wants to hear me on a podcast. I, 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 can't, I can't in all good conscience not sit here and say these things to the people who are listening because if we don't, and you and I talk about this in our personal conversations all the time, don't we? Like we have to model the community in which we want to live and the way. And I know that you do this too because we've talked about it. You also stand up. You're also, you know, righteously honest about your experience with people. No, I would love to swear at this point, but I'm not going to out of deference to you. No, about you because how else do we create that world that we want to live in, that community? We need to own up to our areas for growth. Yeah. And, um, and that's something that I've really enjoyed about our last few episodes. And we, we might um, continue in this theme of challenging topics, talking about, talking about fat bodies and, you know, talking about how do we make our practices inclusive and welcoming of, of everyone you know, regardless of their marital state, regardless of their 
gender identity, regardless of their body size, regardless of their mental health status. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about all of the ways in which we can inadvertently discriminate and unknowingly discriminate against people. And, um, yeah, I'm very grateful for you, Nava, and having these conversations with me. And hopefully our listeners are getting lots out of it too. <laughs> and I hope, look, if people don't take anything away from this, other than the fact that we don't know what we don't know, if they've just gone away thinking, hmm, maybe I should look into this, as they go on their own journey, I reckon we will have done the job we wanted to do from having this conversation. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you, our, our dear listeners. And how have you have you been approaching your patients who are in fat bodies and your patients who are in very, very, very thin bodies or people who've had issues with or ongoing issues that are still going on with, with body image in the context of fertility and in your general practice? And you and I talked about this in the last episode, which was self-care. We talked about a little bit about our relationship with food. But as part of the questions to our readers, I'd be really interested to see or to hear from practitioners about what their experience is with food on a personal level and how they feel that experience might have impacted or not on how they've gone into their practice and how they are practicing with people in different sizes of bodies too. Mm. And how does your own relationship to your own self-image and your own body image and your body size and have you had your own challenges with your weight and does this change or inform the way that you interact with your patients i'm curious to know mm. i think there could be potentially a really great discussion that could come out of this i look forward to reading all the comments yeah well, thanks so much for listening today. We hope that you've really enjoyed today's episode and we'd love to hear some feedback from you. You can post comments on our Facebook feed. You can, uh, we'd love you to leave a review for us on iTunes. If you're loving our show, then please rate us on iTunes and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.